Welcome to the Queer Arabs Podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And we have a guest. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Iman Abdelhadi. I'm an artist, academic, and activist based in Chicago, Illinois. Can you tell the listeners about the film that's coming up? Yeah, so I should say that I didn't make this film. I'm just the subject of it. Um, and the movie is a feature-length documentary um, that centers around my relationship with my mom and specifically um, the process of negotiating the way that we show up for each other in each other's lives um, and the ways that especially my queerness and my sexuality play into our relationship. Yeah, we saw the trailer. It looks really gorgeous. Thank you. I guess um, I'm curious, how did like the idea for this come about? Like, how did you end up having a movie made about your life and your family? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so Saul was the filmmaker um, of the of the project and, and a, now a friend. She had originally approached me um, soon after Orlando happened. Um, so I was really, I was active in building queer Muslim spaces. And um, when Orlando happened, a lot of us felt like we had to kind of come out as visibly queer if we were, if we had the privilege to be able to do so um, as queer Muslims. Um, so I found myself doing a lot of like media interviews and just kind of being in the public eye as someone who was out and I kind of came out as a reaction to Orlando. So uh, Sandra reached out to me about a mini project from her master's thesis, I think. And um, at first she was going to do a project about queer Muslim activists in the city and specifically like queer Arab activists. Um, I was living in New York at the time. Yeah, and over time, as she started filming all of us, she sort of got really interested in my relationship with my mom. Um, if you know me at all, I just can't stop talking about my mom. <laughs> I don't know what it says about me as a I love it. Yeah, she's just the best. Um, yeah, so she's just, we're very, very close. She's just a very remarkable person. And she's someone that I've learned a lot from and just really value. So yeah, I think um, Sandra, as she learned more about my mom, she was like, wait, this is kind of interesting, you know? So she started, she asked if she could start filming both of us. And so I talked to my mom about that. And um, slowly the, the film became about me and my mom primarily uh, about our relationship. Um, and there were several sort of key events that happened in the years over filming. I think Sandra filmed for like five or six years um, for, this, for this movie. And um, so those became kind of central to what, this, what the film ended up being. Wow. Oh, I, I just, I, yeah, I, I hadn't realized so such a long period of time is being captured that's really that's incredible yeah it's really wild I, i'm gonna have to like get her to give me the footage <laughs> so that i have yeah. this archive of my life <laughs> yeah was your mom immediately on board about doing the film um my mom i mean at first we weren't sure what the film was really gonna be right like so sandra was interested in this relationship and you know i wasn't really out to my mom i mean i was publicly out um in that like i had come out on facebook i was like very visibly you know I was like on CNN and like mm -hmm. you know MSNBC and like all these places but I my mom I don't think my mom was really engaging with those like sources and I don't think she really like realized or uh, so there wasn't like a and now I'm gonna come out to my mom on camera or anything like that so it was just like 
So I told her what I knew at the time, which is that, you know, it had started out as a film about my activism and that, you know, and that she was interested in our relationship. And specifically, you know, I told her like, part of why our relationship is interesting is because we have so many differences that we're always trying to work out. And the reality is that like, I think for me, when I think about coming out to my mom, oftentimes I actually think about moments much earlier than talking about queerness, like moments like, you know, I, I wore hijab most of my life. And like the moment of telling my mom that I wasn't going to wear hijab anymore, or telling her that I like didn't pray regularly, or like, you know, these things. So we were already doing a ton of work um, on our relationship. And so I think she understood that as a subject. Yeah, so she was open to it. Um, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I asked that not just about the like queerness and coming out factor, but also to have like, a literal lens on your personal relationships and negotiating all these conflicts is like a lot to ask for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. that's, as we all know, uh, the, I guess, Western gaze or like the white gaze on um, the Muslim community is there's a lot of like black and white or like simplistic views. The fact that you're giving this complexity, showing this complexity within a relationship, I think is so important. Yeah, I think so too. And I think my mom, you know, she's a confident person and she's confident in her stances on things. And I think she's like comfortable kind of representing herself. And so it felt important that she get to appear as her, you know, like that she's not just this shadow. I think it's much easier to like villainize people if you don't see them and you, you know, can't empathize with them. Um, but I think part of what makes the story, you know, like well, part of what makes the story is that it's like a classic mother-daughter story in many ways or mother-child story, right? So it might be that like the specifics are, you know, specific to us and, and our struggles. But I think in general, people have these intergenerational struggles all the time, um, regardless of the community they come from. Yeah, it's a universal experience in like different iterations of that. So what's it like to be kind of at the end of this process? And um, ha have you seen like an edit of the film yet? I have. Um, I saw a cut a couple of years ago and then I saw the most recent cut a couple of months ago. Um, yeah, it's really wild. It's, it's just weird to see myself on camera, you know, like uh, I'm just like, do I do that with my face? <laughs> doing that? Um, but no, it's, it's, it's lovely. And I think, you know, I always say that my relationship with my mom is my actual great, greatest accomplishment. So it's kind of lovely to see it rendered. And I, I trust Sandra so much. Um, we've, you know, we've known each other for um, many years now, and we had these conversations early on and continued to have them. And so she's someone I really trust with my story. It's been lovely to see it like come to fruition and to see her artistic touch. You know, I think she's just a really good filmmaker and yeah I just happen to be the person that this is about but I think it's just like a good story nonetheless you know um from, from I guess from your perspective I know you can't predict like what audience it's going to reach and what the reactions are going to be but like if you could hope for various demographics of audiences um like what they would take away from the film what kinds of uh things come to mind yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think different people are going to take different things from it, depending on their positionality. My ultimate, my biggest hope is that it would provide like hope and, um, and relief for like younger queer Arab and, and Muslim folks that it would just be like, a, oh, okay, things like, 
you know, things can feel really hard at first and things can sort of, not to be cliche, but things do get better. Um, but also, you know, that like, it takes really hard work sometimes for things to get better, that it's not just this kind of like immediate thing. So I hope that people are able to see in it this hope for realignment with their families and their communities and, and a different kind of framework for what coming out might look like. Um, so I also think, I hope that for a broader audience, for folks who are queer folks who may not be Arab or, um, or Middle Eastern or, or Muslim, I would hope that they're, they are able to see it as like a better kind of understanding of where we're coming from, um, where some of us are coming from at least. Um, I think that a lot of us feel like in queer spaces, our families and our communities are villainized. And, I, and I'm not the first person to talk about this, but you know, it just puts us in this hard place where on the one hand, we are frustrated with our communities and our families in many ways, but we don't, we're not treating them as disposable and we're not thinking of them as inherently bad and we don't want our narratives like used for you know Arab phobic or Islamophobic or pinkwashing narratives so I would hope that folks from from that broader community are able to step back and like you know rethink some of the ways queer experiences are framed and then for a kind of really broad audience of like non-queer and non um non-Arab folk you know I would hope that it's just like seen as a human story which is what it is you know um seen as just like another example of yeah, like an intergenerational struggle. I don't like to say the term humanize because like we don't need people to humanize us. We're humans. Yeah. Um, like, but you know, I I hope that it like the the sort of relatability of it can cross some of the boundaries that we have. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. The fact that like humans would need humanization. Like, yeah. Why? <laughs> I was a human when we started this. I know. I'm yeah. like, I don't need you for that. Yeah, yeah. The bar is that low that like, this, oh God. This reminds me actually, Nadia, of, was it like two years ago? Someone wanted, I won't give specifics, but someone like okay. reach, reached out to us and they were like, is anyone on your podcast or like any of the co-hosts of your yeah. podcast, like Muslim and like had to, come out and I had a conversation with that person and she was looking for a very specific narrative yeah, of like yeah she wanted like oh I wanted something about like deeply conservative families and religious trauma and it's like of course like there are some people who fall into that but the fact that you're fishing specifically for that and nothing else it's it's it, yeah it was just so yeah it was just <laughs> indicative of uh, she's a white person and she was just She's like a white non-Muslim. Um, and I, it was just that moment was so indicative to me of like, there is really uh, among a lot of people, there's like this one clear cut narrative they, they like to form in their head, getting different perspectives, different like complexities, like what this film is going to bring, I think is so important. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not surprised that you faced that. I mean, we had so much of that after Orlando with like media stuff. Oh, um, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, if yeah. we don't fit your narrative, like maybe you change your narrative mm -hmm. instead of asking us to change, you know, like, right. our experiences and our lives. Exactly. Um, it's like, if you're having that hard of a time finding this specific story, maybe you should look at why <laughs> it's so yeah. hard to find that. Yeah. yeah. But when you're, it's just about fishing specifically for one thing. And also if that is someone's experience, maybe they don't want to like 
tell you about it when you're being yeah. fishy like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, have you thought about why someone might not want to um, give all their deepest, darkest traumas to you right now? Right. Um, and I just feel like there's like this belief, at least with that person, and I, I've, I've seen it in so many different versions of it, where this idea of like, oh, you came out and then you and your family just cut ties and that's it. It was this like clear cut transition from that one thing to another. And it's like, that's not usually how life works. Like it's never that, you know. Yeah, I yeah. think we we constantly frame coming out as a moment instead of a process. Yeah. Where it's like coming out, at least for me, was just this like long process of like engagement, of like trying to empathize while also asking for empathy you know, um, of showing up. And I think of, and I think that's why we're kind of toying with this word, with this um, name coming around for the documentary, because for me, it was about, you know, sort of like coming around myself to what I expected out of my mom, but also um, literally coming around, like showing up, coming around the house, you know, and waiting for her to come around, which I knew she would do because that's what she's always done. Because ultimately, like she values us being in each other's lives over us agreeing on everything. Um, so this is also important to show that like the simple fact that you can like a person can be queer and Muslim because like there is a lot of uh, yeah you would misconceptions think, like, about that. You'd think with a religion with 1.8 billion people that <laughs> right here that needs needs to overlap. But yeah, I know. Yeah, the fact that yeah this still needs to be like explain to people um yeah there's such a belief that like islam islam is an intolerant religion for queerness and um it's just yeah that's a big misconception and like very simplistic yeah i mean this also makes me think about kind of what how the conversation has shifted since maybe you were like at the beginning of this process and when you were um kind of first really getting into activism because you mentioned Orlando is kind of like the point where you really started coming into the public eye right um yeah. and that was such like a distinctive moment one for like weaponizing queerness and violence towards queerness um as a prop for Islamophobia right and then it also kind of led into this weird I don't know I'm just rem remembering like the Trump campaign and how there was suddenly like a uh, Trump with the badly written out like lgbtq and like a backwards rainbow or some shit um and this uh weird new surge of homo nationalism and at that point i feel like it really the point that needed to be made was like some people are queer and muslim um and that was like such a, a statement at the time even if um maybe people weren't ready for more nuanced narratives I feel like we've we've come a few steps since there. Um, how like, yeah, like how do you feel from your perspective as someone who was uh, really coming into the public eye at that point and has still been obviously you're still in the public eye with this movie. Um, how do you think the narrative surrounding uh, queerness, Muslimness, Arabness has shifted since then? I think the way that uh, queer Arabs and queer Muslims have been have been understood. It sort of reverberates some of the ways that Arabs and Muslims have been understood. And I think one of the weird silver linings to the Trump era is that um, people wanted to be on our side, even if they weren't doing it very well, right? Because it was like, suddenly we were like part of this group that like people could 
be against Trump through us, right? So it's funny because we're still a prop in that situation, you know, but um, I think that our communities worked hard to take advantage of that of that moment to be more visible, to be more, you know, to be, um, to tell our own stories, even if like people were telling stories for us. So, you know, I think about the fact that, especially, you know, with a lot of Muslims who came into the public eye in that Trump moment, right? Like you think about like Ilhan Omar, like you think about um, Rashida Tlaib, you think about, um, you know, these folks who sort of came out as part of like big left and progressive wings of, you know, of American politics. I think that it sort of pushed the community to the left and also just kind of, you know, made visible the ways that, um, that queer folks exist within that community. So I think, I think because of the sort of like particular moment of political allegiances, you also have visible and prominent Muslims like acknowledging like queerness within our community. And I think that's been, that's been helpful in the national light. I don't think it's everything. I don't think it's a substitute for queer community. I don't think it's a substitute for organizing, but I also think that that organizing has been happening, you know? And I think that mobilization has been happening like both locally and nationally. Um, so I think that's part of the progress, you know, is that we're more visible because of this kind of like political moment, but we're also um, finding each other and, and doing something with that. Even just since starting the podcast, it's just wildly different. We started yeah. it in 2018. And between 2018 and now, just the visibility um, of other queer Arabs and queer Muslims, it's everywhere now. And it's really, it's exciting. Yeah. So. I guess on that note, do you want to talk a little bit more about um, your activism and organizing work? Yeah. So um, for the last couple of years, I've, well, since fall of 2019, I've been um, co-coordinating this organization called Masjid, which stands for Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity. Um, and it's an organization that works to, that started in 2011 and works to serve uh, anyone with a kind of relationship to Muslimness. So it's actually like the most diverse in terms of Muslimness, Muslim space that I've ever been in. And I've grew up in Muslim communities um, in that there's kind of everybody. We always, we use the term Muslimish <laughs> um, because, you know, the, it'll, we'll have people who are like ex-Muslim and we'll have people who pray five times a day. Um, and the idea is just like, come, whatever you're doing, it's fine. And we're gonna create lots of different spaces so that folks can connect to each other. So for a long time, we had an in-person queer Muslim retreat for queer Muslims and their partners, or queer Muslim- Oh, oh okay. Yeah. I've heard all about that. Cool, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're those people. <laughs> yeah, awesome, okay. Yeah, so, you know, we don't, we haven't been doing the retreat for obvious reasons, um, but we shifted to a lot of on, online programming um, since the pandemic started. And so, you know, we do these like um, monthly community nights. Um, we support, you know, local programs when they happen. Um, and our goal is just to connect everyone. Um, so we, we offer a wide range of programming. Some of it is like religious programming, like Quran studies during Ramadan. And some of it is just like game nights, or we even had a, <laughs> a very ambitious um, Zoom speed dating event, which was very oh difficult God. to coordinate. How'd that go? <laughs> yeah, how was that? I think people had fun. I'm not sure yeah. they had any actual dates. Yeah. 
That's so cool. That's so cool. Was, that sounds logis- logistically really hard. I wonder, does everyone have like a breakout room? Is that how it worked? Did she- yeah, like we had like oh multiple God. breakout rooms. We had one person who was like doing the tech and she was just like superhero status. Oh like, my God. People from breakout room to breakout room. But, and people were very patient with us because we were like experimental. Yeah, so, uh, you <laughs> know, some things, are <laughs> some things are a miss. No, that's, I, I bet everyone had a good time, like, regardless of, like, tech stuff. That's so fun. That's a good story, anyway. It is. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, for everyone there, yeah. Um, I had some friends in, I used to live in Houston, and I had several friends who would go on the retreats, so that's how I heard about them. So I, I'm really excited to hear, like, that's you're that person that's really cool (laughs) (laughs) Um, I heard good things Um, good yeah yeah. I actually you know it's funny I joined the steering committee and then COVID happened so I've never even gotten to oh no okay but you know we've done a lot of other cool stuff so sounds like it I'm yeah definitely gonna start following yeah I even knew some people who like started dating at one of the retreats which is really fun there's been a lot of those i'm yes. sure <laughs> yeah in-person speed dating at the retreats works very i'm well. sure that works yeah. fun, way better you don't need as many breakout rooms for that no you don't you just <laughs> the table and you're good yeah <laughs> speaking of gender and muslim that like nice segue great segue <laughs> I'm so good at transitions. <laughs> Do you want to talk about your academic work? Sure. So I am, so I'm a professor at UChicago. Um, and my, so I'm a sociologist by training. Um, so my work is on, so my dissertation project was on basically trying to trace why it is that some people like leave Muslim communities and why some people stay. Um, and what I end up finding is that there's this big gender discrepancy where women, um, women when they leave, um, like both women and men um, in this community. And my, my sample was small enough that I didn't have any uh, folks who identified as like trans or non-binary in my first sample. Um, and uh, so both women and men in my, in my research um, experiment with other like identities and other community spaces as they're like growing up. Um, but then when women leave, they leave for good, whereas men kind of detour back. So the academic book is really, um, which I'm currently writing, is all about basically the ways that there's pressure on women to um, to uphold like the community's norms around gender and around sexuality, and it creates this sort of double standard where there's a lot of pressure and women react to that by sort of distancing themselves. Um, but because men don't have really conflicted relationships and they get to kind of be one foot in, one foot out, um, they get to sort of compartmentalize different parts of their lives. Um, they're able to kind of come back when they're ready to adult. Um, and so I kind of talk about that gender inequality in the in the book. Oh wow, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. That's <laughs> <It's awesome>. <laughs> <Checks>. <laughs> um, What was that research process like? So I did life history interviews um, with folks, um, with Muslim folks. You know, a lot of times when people want to study Muslim Americans, they start like with the mosque or the MSA, the Muslim Student Association. 
And um, part of my intervention was to be like, okay, well, let's not start with those places and then let's see what happens, right? Um, let's see like what relationships we find if we're not already just kind of focusing on the people who stay and the people who are really attached uh, to these communities. So um, yeah, I did a sample based on like voter registration and um, yeah, and, and did these like life history interviews with people where I sort of traced out what these relationships were at different points in the life course. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think a lot of studies, they start like the people who are most attached to a specific identity, which is like not everybody who has that identity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that ties back to, I mean, the whole model for masjid is just like recognizing that everyone has their own relationship to something and um, they're all valid. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, you uh, before we started talking, you mentioned a book that you're co-writing. Uh, do you want to talk about that? And like, it's coming out in July, you said? Yeah, right. so you know how I did life history interviews for my research, as I just said? Uh, a friend of mine, um, she ran the New York Public Library's Trans Oral History Project for a long time. So she was also doing trans, like oral histories with trans folks all over New York. Um, and that's a really cool project. You should check it out. It, all the oral histories are online. Um, but so we had both done oral histories and we decide, and we're both sci-fi fans. <laughs> so we decided to write a fictional oral history where we have these like fictional interviews that take place in the late 2060s. So we imagine a world in which um, the nation, the global, global capitalism falls and um, the nation state falls. And so people kind of, which is not at all a fun process, um, but um, we kind of imagine the moment after of people sort of coming together and creating, you know, structures based basically on mutual aid or um, if I'm allowed to use the C word communism. Um, and uh, yeah, so we basically imagine a kind of communist New York um, in the 70s. Um, and it's super fun. <laughs> what's, what's future communist New York like, if you want to spoil it a little bit? Yeah, it's um, so we think a lot about what it means for the institutions that we we have that we think of as like kind of immutable, like the family um, to totally be disrupted. So, you know, we're both people who are interested in gender and sexuality and um you know, we we think about what it would be like for for families to not be nuclear, for example, right? What would it be like when when all of your material needs are taken care of and are not tied to who you marry or who you fuck or who you know who's your who your parents are? Um, so we kind of think about all of the sort of collectivization of resources and the idea that you don't need money <laughs> to like to either produce things like you don't have a profit motive because you don't have sort of exchange in that way um so each interview kind of builds the world a little bit um and yeah and we think about like the in our kind of imagination this the communization process actually happens globally first and the u.s is kind of the last place to come around <laughs> to yeah. this yeah version. that figures yeah you mentioning um yeah, like how nu nuclear quote unquote families are like immutable. The the fact that we are, we have to think of it that way. It reminds me of our last podcast episode. We um, talked to um, someone who, Tarek, and he mentioned, he, he gave a really good analogy of like the family structure being so similar to like the state. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really good uh, way of describing it. There's someone in power. Other people are like feeling trapped in whatever the system is that someone, whoever in power has put into place. And like there is this dependency created. And a family often is like that, like that same structure. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I think something he, he brought up was like in both of them, there's this violence or abuse that happens in the name of keeping the peace, whether it's keeping the peace within a family or keeping the peace within a state and they reinforce each other. Um, so that just all feels very tied to what you're talking about here. Yeah. And inherent violence is like yeah. your material, your material well-being, your survival, you know, being tied into these, these structures, right? Um, and, you know, we've created all these myths of choice around this and merit and all of these things, but reality, like, we lead lives that are largely dictated, you know, we make choices at the margins, but you're going to starve, um, <laughs> you know, if, if one choice is to starve, that's not a choice at all. Yeah, um, right. So. I'm all, I mean, of course, I support people who want to get married so like I support gay marriage but also the the fact that like it had to happen for people to have the rights to, I don't know make medical choices for each other or, like get uh, yeah just survive in this society is also pretty disturbing because like I, that might not necessarily be the model people were actually looking for but it's like all the the only choice yeah. yeah, there are couples in the communist future that we imagine, but they're not the only form. And um, whether or not you're in one doesn't severely change your life outcomes. You know, it doesn't change like the kind of housing you have access to, the kind of things you're able to to have, you know, it's a very different. Yeah, so the novel is called Everything for Everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's coming out with um, common notions in July. Awesome. Wait, so in this universe, when when does everything, I guess it's already started collapsing, but when does it really, when does it really fall apart? Yeah, so we imagine that like basically a, a combination of climate crisis and economic crisis in the like in the mid to late 30s pushes the state closer and closer to collapse. And then in the early 40s, different nation states begin to collapse um, and are like, and there's various levels of conflict in that. And so like, we, we think about like the Levant, um, you know, uh, being a place where like liberalization or like liberation happens early because things are already so bad. And then, so we think about like the nation states that are already weak kind of falling first and there being conflict over resources and stuff, but then eventually kind of a move towards um, communization. In New York, we think of this as happening or in, yeah, in New York in the early 50s. Um, So the book is supposed to be like a kind of fake like celebration of the beginning of the New York commune 20 years later. So we even have a fake, we're not academics, we have like a fake introduction in the beginning where we're like, this is an oral history project. Oh my God, I love it. (laughs) I love that. I love it. That's it's the nerdiest novel ever written. It's I can't wait. Um, as for the film, do you have like a timeline for like do you know if there's the timeline for when it comes out? Well, I suspect I don't really know Sandra's the person. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah, but I suspect that it'll come out sometime in the fall. But I might be wild off. Got you. Okay. I'll I'll check. Just kind of stay tuned and. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Me too. Look around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll know. You'll you'll know when you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
Well, thank you. This was amazing uh, to get to connect with you. Um, I'm so excited for the book, too. Um, <laughs> and you. yeah, excited for the film. Um, everyone listening, keep an eye out or uh, yeah, keep an eye out for we'll be posting about um, crowd some crowdfunding that's going to be happening for the film. Maybe by the time we publish this, it'll already be happening. It's the future. No yes, one knows. Um, exactly. And Iman, uh, where can people follow you and stay in touch with what you're doing? Yeah, so um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Iman Abdelhadi. Um, so it's E-M-A-N-A-B-D-E-L-H-A-D-I. And um, you can try to follow me on Instagram, but I'll probably reject you if I don't know you. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, but um, yeah, uh, you can definitely follow me on Twitter and I post all the new things. I'll follow you from the podcast Twitter. That's like the only time I go on Twitter is through the podcast. And I, when I ever, whenever I get on there, I'm like, why am I not on here? Like, <laughs> I know. Actually, I, always I like Twitter. Yeah. It's yeah. a good form. Yeah, it I is. I think I just, I don't know. I think I'm like trying to stick to the, I'm also not a Twitter person. I'm mostly on Instagram. I'm like, let me just stick to the things that are already sucking my time and not add in <laughs> yeah. anymore. Fair. Well, um, for those who want to try, my Instagram is eabdelhadi. See how it goes. Give it a go. <laughs> Maybe I'll turn my Instagram public after this. Oh, you heard it here <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can see pictures of my cat. It's gonna be very, very Wait, exciting. I'm obsessed with cats, so like that that alone that's, that's a is good, a draw. Yeah. That's oh that'll do it. My that'll cat do it. has her own Instagram and it is at Kenoof underscore official. And that's the Instagram that you oh. should She has a new follower about to happen. Yeah. Okay. It's, um, that's amazing. It's yeah, she's a fluffy Persian that I acquired in Abu Dhabi and she's oh. the best. Oh my god. I'm actually following right now. I'm following right this moment. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The most important thing that happened in this podcast episode today. Uh, oh, by far. Oh my god, she's stunning. Okay, <laughs> I'm a fan already. Excellent. Oh, oh my god. Abu Dhabi to New York to Chicago. Such a traveler. Oh, she's named Knefe. Nefe. Her name is actually Nefe. I she love got her. I love her so much. Okay, well, thank you for this. Just okay. motivate me to post more. Her. Okay, good. She's so fluffy. I love her. Um, all right. So, anyone, uh, anyway, um, if you, you want to follow us. Yeah, if you want to follow <laughs> yeah. us, not quite as exciting as the kitty, but um, we are at the Queer Arabs on instagram twitter and facebook you can email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com and our website is thequeerarabs.com hi from future alia it is february 22nd we recorded that episode on february 4th have a couple good updates coming around is the official name of the film also the crowdfunding campaign has begun so please check out our website our social media and you'll see how you can contribute to this amazing film Thank you.